Galatians chapter 4. As we move along in this letter, we are looking at uh, verses 8 to 20 this morning. And the context of this whole letter is establishing that foundational truth for the church, the foundational truth upon which the church stands, and that is that we are justified only by the grace of God extended to us through the Lord Jesus Christ and received by faith alone. And here Paul expresses in these uh, verses that we're looking at this morning the fears he has for the church that loses that truth. So Galatians 4, verse 8 to 20, hear the word of God. But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness, I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always. And not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's eternal word abides. And may he bring his blessing. Well, it wouldn't be a Reformation Sunday if we didn't hear the Reformation solas. And sola, my dear friends, is uh, the Latin word for alone. And uh, the Reformation, uh, not just under Martin Luther, but under many other men, uh, brought forth a change in the understanding of truths that we are to hold to as a church. And one of the greatest truths of the Reformation were what we call the five solas. Uh, Latin, they are sola gratia, sola fide, sola Christos, sola scriptura, and sola dea gloria. And uh, in English, what they mean, and putting them into a sentence, they mean this, that we as sinners are saved. That is, we are delivered from the penalty and debt our sins have incurred against a holy God. Sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed by Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. In other words, we are justified 
only by the grace of God. And the only ways in which we can receive that justification is by extending faith to God and saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to be justified? That is a word that we often use, and it's a word I have uh, as well defined several times in this series. To be justified is to have your sins pardoned, all of them, past, present, future. And if you think that is a small thing, then understand that all it takes is one sin for you to have to endure the eternity of hell as punishment. And when you understand that and when we look at ourselves and we consider not just one sin, when we consider our sinfulness, when we consider even the attitudes and the inward thoughts of our hearts being against God, it's not just what we have done, but how we have thought. What we have spoken, that our sins, as Scripture says, are more than the numbers of our head. And and to be justified is to have every one of them, past and present and future, the ones we have yet to commit, to have them all forgiven. And in the presence of God, to have them all so forgiven that He no longer looks at you and says, what I see before me is a sinner who deserves death. What He sees before Him as you believe in Christ and that atonement that He has gained for you. What He says is, I see one of my own children who is covered by the righteousness of my Son and I will accept Him. And so the very essence of being justified is being forgiven and accepted by God in Jesus Christ. Scripture tells us, and we hear those affirmations, those who by faith believe in Jesus Christ, they will be saved, period. (laughs) They are saved. They are His. And there is nothing that is able to 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 turn that love of God for us that has been sealed in the blood of Jesus. There is nothing that is able to turn that away. There is nothing able to separate us from that love of God. It's amazing. You see why uh, John Newton said those words, amazing grace. Because what have you done to gain that grace from God? Nothing. What do you bring to the table that allows God to say, you are forgiven and I now accept you? Well, as uh, one uh, person said, the only thing we bring to that table is our sinfulness. There's nothing else we can bring to that table. That's the reality of justification. There you see the Reformation bringing forth that truth that had been lost during the medieval age of the church. But there is another Latin phrase that came uh, with the Reformation. Didn't know you were going to get a Latin lesson this morning. I'm not a Latin expert. I rely on others who have done the work uh, regarding this. But it's Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda. And, And that was a phrase that also came out of the Reformation And it meets the church in every generation. What that phrase, Ecclesia Reformata Semper Reformanda, 
What does that mean? It means this. The Reformed Church is always being reformed. We're never stagnant, though we do become stagnant as Christ's church. We can't be. Even that phrase, though, has been corrupted. That motto of the Reformation has seen its corruptions. It's been misused and misunderstood. What it does not mean is that the church needs to keep up with the times. It doesn't mean that the church needs to change to be quote-unquote relevant to its generation. In the sense of having to leave things behind that are part of our foundation. Of changing things to accommodate a generation of sinners. It doesn't mean that our doctrines need to be redefined because people believe some of the scripture has dogmas that are more culturally set. That, that idea of the Reformed Church being reformed is wrong. That's not what is intended. Interestingly enough, That is what the reformers were accused of doing. Men like John Calvin, Martin Luther, Zwingli, and all of them. If you were to look at them, the reformers were accused, quote, accused of rash and impious innovation for venturing to propose any change at all in the former state of the church. That was from Calvin's book, John Calvin, The Necessity of Reforming the Church. They were accused of bringing about changes and innovation that was affecting the climate of the then former state of the church. And they were changing things. They were reforming the church. But again, it wasn't change for change's sake. We often think that a change is as good as what? A rest. Or a change is as good as fill in the blank. No. This, this phrase, the reformed church is always being reformed, was not about change, but about a returning of the church to its true nature that had been lost in the medieval time. It was about Cleansing the church of the innovations that had been brought into worship and into the doctrines of the gospel by the then standing church. And a whole lot of innovation, a whole lot of tradition, a whole lot of of change to truth about how God himself is to be worshipped and about the truths that are foundational to being the church had all been changed over the course of almost a thousand years. And it certainly wasn't any longer the apostolic church of the first century. The authority of scripture was usurped by the traditions of the church. We will tell you what is right and wrong. And even if it corrupts what scripture teaches, the authority of the church is greater. And with that, not only the authority of Scripture, but the simplicity of the Gospel. What I just explained to you about receiving God's salvation 
by faith alone. We don't think that is radical today. But it was radical in Luther's time. How dare you say that simple faith can attain the glories of pardon of sin and acceptance with The simplicity of the gospel is not just believe on Christ and you'll be delivered. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and understand his work on the cross is your salvation. But that simplicity of the gospel was overrun with greed and with indulgences. Buy this tag and you'll be forgiven your sin. Buy this tag and, and, and we'll ensure that someone is, is removed out of purgatory. That's the corruption of the gospel in that time. But with that also, the purity of worship in spirit and truth had become infested with idolatry. The way the Lord's Supper and baptism were taught and conducted. The way that prayers were offered. The way that God was sought in worship. They put God beyond the reach of the people. And made the man standing up front as the one who would ensure that you had a way to God. Not the one who was in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And with all of that, the fear of the Lord was replaced by the fear of the papacy. That's the problem. An ecclesia reformata, semper reformandum. It wasn't about an ever-changing church in her doctrine. It was about a church ever returning to truth. It was about the church ever returning to the truth and authority of Scripture. Ever returning to the simplicity of the gospel. Ever returning to the purity of worship and the fear of the Lord. Or as Jude would say in Jude 3, ever contending earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I say that because... We don't want to think that the Reformation happened and it's done. It had to happen over and over again in the life of the church in the 1700s when they lost a vision for evangelizing the world. And in the 18-1900s when we deem that science holds more authority over our faith and life than God's word. Even in our day, with all the confusion of what it means to be a man or a woman. But it's not new since the Reformation. That motto was needed in Paul's day. That's why he's writing this letter to the Galatians. Do you not see where you have fallen? I'm afraid for you. I I seem like I've labored in vain before you. I've become your enemy. I have doubts. And this within two to three years of his gospel ministry in going to Galatia and establishing all the churches. Do you see how quick and easy it is for a church to turn away? 
from God, from his word, from the gospel. It's legalism. And legalism has many tentacles. It can be like formalism. It can be traditionalism. It can be an idolatry where we want to bring in what is current in our world and worship God the way the world worships their gods. Legalism. The departure from that free grace of God in Jesus Christ. A departure from that undeserved and unmerited love of a holy God for an unworthy sinner. Legalism is turning away from that grace and saying, I'll find my own way to God. I'll go in accordance with what I think is right for me, and I'll be happy with it. And and anything that, that makes that thought a reality in your life, my friends, that's legalism. That's saying you don't need the grace of God found only in Jesus Christ to be delivered from your sin. And do you know how many people walk in that life? I'm not a bad person. I'm pretty good. I haven't done anything that's put me in jail yet. And when we make those statements, what we don't realize is that only by the grace of God you haven't. But you're still a sinner. You're still one whose heart is dead to God unless it's been born again by the Spirit. You're still one who in your own soul does not willingly seek God but rather hides away from Him and you need His grace. Those who try to be right with God outside of His grace in Jesus Christ are walking in legalism. I'll find my own way. But my friends, that that issue is also one of the greatest dangers to the church. And it's one of the greatest dangers to our own faith and hope in Christ. And what Paul shows us in this particular passage are the impacts of legalism. And the first thing we see in verses 8 to 11 is how faith becomes vain. When you depart from the gospel, faith becomes vain. You know, this is the thing about Christianity. Christianity is truly distinct from all other faiths and faith religions in the world. To back up from from verses 10 to 8, what Paul does here as he challenges the Galatian churches about how Because they are abandoning that understanding that we are only justified by faith in Christ. We are only pardoned and accepted by God, by faith in Jesus Christ. By departing from that, he is saying is that you've just returned to the paganism of the world. You see, Christianity is distinct from those religions and faiths in the world. It does not trust in sentimentality and superstition of traditions to make faith real. You read that in verse 10. 
You observe days and months and seasons and years. What's he talking about there? He's talking about this propensity for us to say, well, on these special days, I go to see God. We have one of those special days coming up next in, in a couple months. How many people go to church at Christmas and at Easter? Why? I thought I'd give God my due once or twice a year. Christianity doesn't work like that. We fall into that trap of making those special seasons prominent. Ours is a religion of worship every day. And ours is a religion of assembling every Lord's Day. Ours is a religion of coming together as the people of God and seeking Him through the Lord Jesus and being amazed that we are able to come into the holy presence of an almighty God through the blood of his son and be welcomed and accepted. Isn't that something? And that is distinct because ours is a religion that speaks of atonement for sin and an atonement that has been made by the righteous one, Jesus. And Christianity is not a religion that seeks to pacify and appease God by some self-sacrificial act. You you see that in verse 9 when he says, after you've known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you again desire to be in bondage to? And he's talking about that propensity that was rising in their midst to return to the Old Testament Jewish way of seeking and serving God through the temple worship and through the various blood sacrifices and holding of feast days and all of those things. As if we could pacify our God like the pagans do. You look at the other religions of the world and they're all about in their mentality seeking how they can at least Keep God at peace with them. And you can talk to anyone caught up within those religions and you ask them, why do you do good? Well, I do good because if I don't, God's going to uh, curse me, do something against me. Christianity already understands something. That, That outside of Christ, we're already cursed. We're already judged. We're already under wrath. We come to God in Christ To be delivered from that. And when we are delivered in Christ. We're not talking about us trying to appease God. Trying to keep him happy. Trying to keep him satisfied. Trying to keep his wrath at bay. Christ has already done that. Isn't that marvelous? And isn't that important to lay hold of? Because Christ has already Quench the wrath of God against me. I'm not here looking at how I can prevent that wrath from coming again. Christ has silenced it. We walk in that. Even though today, tomorrow, I may sin again. I have the perfect plea. Christ, I'm not under condemnation. I've been delivered from it. But I still need to be cleansed. And hallelujah, God is always there faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us from our unrighteousness and to treat us as his children. And he does all of this in love to us. Why? Because Christ has appeased God. 
on our behalf. It's a different religion. And, and Christianity is not a religion that is serving, serving some deity who is indifferent to the human struggle. So many do this. They serve their God, whatever God it may be. They serve their God in that struggle and hope that at my goodness will at least outweigh my badness. It'll never happen. <laughs> and I mean that of yourself. Don't ever think you have more goodness than you do badness. It's always the other way around. Most of us, by the age of eight, have forgotten all the times that we have dishonored our parents. Most of us, by the age of 20, have forgotten those times when we have done some terrible things. Many of us present our goodness as a badge of achievement that is balancing the scales in our favor. That's paganism. Christianity is not about that. That's what Paul calls there. Uh, if weak and beggarly elements, the feeble poverty of paganism. Do you know that's, that's what Satan whispers in the ears of, of the ungodly and sometimes whispers in the ears of God's people. He whispered that in the ears of Adam and Eve when he said, you don't need to follow God's word. Oh, you've got enough wisdom of yourself to discern what is right and wrong for yourself. Just follow your heart. We hear that all the time today, don't we? Follow your heart. Now, we mean it sometimes in a good way when someone is wondering, what should I do with my life? And, and they're deciding between college and university or, or workplace environment. And there's a sense where you're following something. But following your heart is not faith. It becomes a substitute for faith. What faith is saying is that I have no hope of salvation except for what God has provided in Jesus Christ and I believe in Him alone for my salvation. My heart Oh, my heart. What does Scripture say of my heart? <laughs> it's desperately wicked. Deceitful above all. Who can know it? God knows it. And he says to us, you follow that way, you will bring yourself into bondage. Because in the end, all you're left with is, have you done enough religion? And that, that's what Paul's summary is. I'm spending the most time here on verses 8 to 10 because this is his summary. People live with this idea, have I done enough religion to keep God happy, to keep him appeased, to settle my accounts with him? Have I done enough religion? That's not Christianity. Christianity, as he says there in verse 8 and 9, is about knowing God. Knowing God. Now to quote John Calvin again on this day, John Calvin, when he wrote his Institutes, a famous work that really brought forth a foundation of doctrine for the church, he began his Institutes, the opening lines, with this. 
True and sound wisdom consists of two parts. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. We can never achieve a clear knowledge of ourselves unless we first look upon God, the one in whom we all live and move and have our being. Begins with God. And this is what Paul is saying. You have known God, verse 9, or rather, you are known by God. Why are you turning back to those weak and beggarly elements and bringing yourself into bondage? You know God. And and that knowledge of God isn't what you are conjuring up in your own thoughts. This is who I think God is. This is who God has revealed himself to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life. Now, don't raise your hands, but I, I would suspect if I asked the question, how many here want to live in heaven forever? We'd all shoot up our hands, wouldn't we? Well, Jesus says, this is eternal life. Are your ears pricked now? Here is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Do we know God as the sovereign, eternal, infinite, unchangeable God who from all eternity was God, who has created all things by the word of his power? Out of nothing. Who has established man as the pinnacle of creation. Creating us after his image in all holiness and righteousness and knowledge. So that we as his greatest part of creation. We would have communion with him. Do we know That this God is holy and righteous and in whose presence no sin can abide. No evil, nothing wicked. He is of purer eyes than to behold wickedness. Do we understand what sin has done to us before this God? It has made us impossible to be in his presence. It has made us impossible to have communion with Him. It has made us impossible to have life with God. And that's why we need to know Jesus Christ whom He has sent. Because as a sinner before God, even God looks at us and He says, I look upon you, the thoughts and the imaginations of your heart, they're corrupt, always corrupt and wicked in my sight. And the question begs us, then how can I relate to God? How can I stand before him? How can I abide in his presence? And you need to know Jesus Christ whom he sent. And when you look at Christ, God the Son who became a man, as we saw last week in the fullness of time, God became a man. And he, in 
holiness, righteousness, as the perfect man who did all to glorify God, who never sinned against God in his whole life, who was undeserving of death, he went to the cross willingly to be our sin bearer before God, to deal with the wickedness and the corruption of our very lives, the sinfulness of our being. And when we know Jesus Christ in this, here's what we, we know and see. Here is what it took to deal with our sin. This is the great payment for the sins of His people. The death of His Son, who, for whatever moment it was, I've always wondered how long was it that Christ experienced what it was to be forsaken by God. But who for that time in his life for the very first time was not abiding in the presence of God and he endured the pains and the curse and the judgment that was due to us for our sins. See what Paul is saying here? If you don't believe this, Faith becomes vain, it becomes empty, it becomes meaningless. When we think we can save ourselves from our sins, it's no longer about God's grace, it's no longer about Jesus Christ, it's simply about us. There is no salvation. My friends, this is where we're called to return. This is what the church even today has forsaken and needs to return to. The truth How are you saved from your sins? How are you justified before God? Friends, only by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ are we delivered from all our sins. Believe on Him. Trust Him. Look to Him. You will be saved.